Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, if you're a regular listener to WNYC's On the Media, you know that Brooke Gladstone is a force in journalism. You hear her commitment to accurate, nuanced reporting and analysis in everything that show does. She won't accept any nonsense, even from her co-host, Bob Garfield. Now, Gladstone has made an attempt to puncture our subjective media bubbles and shine a light on one of the major questions of this political moment. How do we sort fact from fiction? Her new book is The Trouble with Reality, a rumination on moral panic in our time. Gladstone spoke with KUOW's chief content officer, Jennifer Strachan, at Seattle's University Lutheran Church on November 1st. Town Hall Seattle presented the event as part of their civics series. Sonia Harris recorded the conversation. All right. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming out tonight, and uh, welcome to Seattle, Brooke. We're so excited to have you. Great to be here. When I was flying in from Portland, I thought, this is the most beautiful place I've ever seen. It's paradise. We have that on record. Ever seen. Yes, exactly. Well, it's a perfect time to have this conversation, and for those of you who've uh, read the book, and even if you haven't, we'll have an opportunity here later to get it, but one of the things that's interesting about um, this particular book, so very short, little tiny book, you'll see here, you can get one later, The Trouble with Reality. So this is where we find ourselves, and I think it's probably why most of you are here tonight, is this is, this is a very important question in our time, but there's something very um, empowering about your approach, and I'm hoping you can talk with us a little bit about that, and that's that reality is personal. Tell us a little bit yeah, about your take. It's, uh, although the process I describe of how we craft it is almost disemboweling because it's, we have to build our own realities. The world is too complicated. It's too vast for us to fully comprehend. So we have to build a, a facsimile, a version. And that's where we live. And it is within that world that we understand why things happen the way they do. There are certain principles on which we build our reality, webs of beliefs, one thing hinging on another, hinging on another. You start tugging at one thread, you could mess up the whole thing. And that is deeply disquieting. And uh, the reason, what I wanted to explore in the the pamphlet, as I call it, (laughs) is, Why, for so many people, the results of this election were so much worse, so much more agonizing, anguishing, than other elections when presidents we might not have liked or trusted or countenanced in any way uh, found themselves to the White House. This was more than just the election of a president. This was something that shook the foundations of our reality. We didn't see it really coming, even if we said we did. This isn't how the world works, not the world that we created, not the world that functions under the rules that we believe it functions under, which means we have to start over again. It's a big smash up. And what I did in the book, which maybe is empowering, is, uh, is talk about 
how and why we craft those realities and uh, what were some of the foundational principles that turned out not to work and uh, it's a starting point for reconstruction maybe. Is that kind of what it was? Yeah, yeah. Well, you use it. There's a couple of, of terms you use in the book that I'm dying to get uh, a little bit deeper into. You talk about fake reality begins in our own head. Right. And you use a couple of terms, the umwelt and the... Umbagung. Umbagung. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, um, it's a term that is used in the natural world. You know, basically... It is, your umwelt is the world that you experience. It, it basically shows how different creatures, different living things can share the same patch of earth and experience entirely different realities. Like uh, if you're a bat, it's echolocation waves. And if you're a tick, it might be butyric acid that you're aware of. Obviously, if you're a dog, the way that you experience the world is uh, entirely different from the way your master or mistress does. And if you realized how little of the world they could comprehend with their nose, they would just feel so bad for us because it's as if we were blind. So here we all living in the same space and we all see some things very keenly and other things not at all. And that, I thought, was a very good metaphor for how we live in the world today. Now, the umbagung is the rest of the world, the, the world, re, complete reality, whatever that may be. The thing that we can't comprehend, but we are nevertheless sometimes, uh, you know, hit across the head and shoulders with, you know, upside the head with the umbagung, because it's there whether or not we see it or whether or not we choose to see it. I see. Okay. So does that make any sense? You're yes, looking at me like, yes. uh -huh. no, this is one of the fascinating things. So, so in this book, Brooke takes this down this, all these different rabbit holes, right? And yeah. so we're trying to explore sort of our own personal stake in where we find ourselves, which is interesting. And you talk about the idea that, um, in order for democracy to work, we have to have a consensus of the truth, and we, we just don't have that right now. Well, what we really, in order for democracy to work, what we need is a common pool of facts, of information. Uh, you know, we build our own truth out of it. You know, our truth is what we make after we cull through the facts, pick the ones we like, and marinate them in our values and our beliefs and our history and our personal experiences and our family traditions and so on. And then, you know, so we've got some facts in there and others are judiciously left out. Now, for democracy to work, democracy is essentially a negotiation, sometimes an agreement to disagree. But you're all working from the same pool of information and that's where your negotiation begins. If you're able to convey to enough of the nation that everybody has an agenda, that you can't believe the news, you can't believe the Congressional Budget Office, you can't believe the data collected by the EPA, you can't believe anything 
that uh, anybody does, because everybody has an agenda, well, uh, then you're free to assume that you can just pick your facts. You can pick whatever facts you want on the basis of its truthiness, on what makes you feel good. And, uh, and democracy falls apart, and the person with the loudest voice wins. And I think that, you know, as I go through trying to find what are those foundational ideas with which many of us crafted our realities, which of those didn't obtain, one of them was that, you know, reality, uh, that democracy will endure. But democracy, I finished the, the book with a quote from John Adams who basically says it's, uh, it's a system like any other and uh, it's only as good as the people who operate the levers. And uh, that's true of our political system. If it's, uh, it can be contorted and distorted and hoist on its own petard and, uh, you know, we have to guard it every day. We have to guard the quality of the people who operate those levers. And we have to make sure to refresh the system so that at least the people are being represented. And we know that given gerrymandering, they're not. You know, the country is 50-50, but the Congress is 65% uh, Republican, not 50%. And the reason is that uh, gerrymandering has become so precise, thanks to the kind of data collection we can do, that it can, I mean, there is a, there's a, I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but this is another thing that happens because people care more about winning than they care about democracy. And, you know, maybe that's just the way humans are. Well, one of the things I think is interesting about your take on this book, which is, is comforting in a way, is I, I think some of us feel that we're in this time that is, is extremely unique. It's, it's because of Trump that we've arrived at this time because of one individual, and one of the things that you talk about in this book, you, you mention um, this uh, Neil Postman idea that he published, that this amusing ourselves to, de to death back in 1985, and he contrasts the, um, George Orwell's 1984 with Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. And yeah, uh, would you, you wanna read a little bit of that? It's really, really fascinating. Yeah, uh, you know, we all know that 1984 just, flew off the shelves and was a bestseller again after the election. And it reminded me of, of this in Amusing Ourselves to Death because this is what I see the problem as. And here I'm quoting Neil Postman talking about uh, Orwell and uh, 1984 and Huxley, Brave New World. And uh, does anybody need me to sort of distinguish between those two books. I mean, very quickly, in, uh, in Brave New World, you have Big Brother, you have a crushing foot that, you know, grinds down on any sense of personal love or individuality, constant surveillance, thought crime, you know, uh, all of these illogical constructions that people are forced to believe, the rewriting of history and so on. It's derived from, you know, he wrote it in 1948 and it was 
his response to you know the Soviet ascendancy and uh, Nazis and, and Nazism and fascism and all of that. Now it was ten years earlier in in the 30s, still in between the wars, that uh, Huxley wrote Brave New World, which was a world where everyone was complacent and happy and fed on happy drugs called Soma and encouraged to participate in uh, nationally subsidized orgies and, and they were designed genetically. There was no real close personal relationships. They were designed as alphas, betas, and so on for their lot in life. And anyway, so that's, that's Brave New World. I probably didn't need to say that, but just in case I didn't want to leave anyone behind. And here's what uh, Postman said. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with the equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy, which is in the book. In 1984, Orwell said that people were controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. Powerful stuff. So where does Brooke Gladstone fall on the side of those two arguments? A hundred percent with Huxley. There's, there's just no question. We are drowning in a sea of irrelevance, a sea that is where the waves turn higher and higher thanks to the endless tweets of the president. I like to, I like to think of uh, um, President Trump filling the air with shiny objects that reporters run after like, you know, dogs after squirrels. And there's, and there's not enough prioritizing going on. The latest thing is the next headline. And, uh, and it's all about who's winning and losing and who's getting the blame for what. And the really important stuff is being reported, but it's being subsumed in, in many places. I really do think there's incredibly fine journalism going on out there. I encourage people just not to watch TV and not to get their news from Facebook. Because, uh, you know, as Clay Shirky, a great thinker of the internet age, said, it's not, the problem isn't one of uh, information overload. The problem is one of filter failure. The gatekeepers are gone. They've been trampled by the democratic communication system, the universal media we have now. And that, in many ways, is a wonderful thing. But, you know, now it's up to everybody to find their gatekeeper or gatekeepers, and not the easy ones whose only res responsibility is to validate what you already believe, but to introduce things that are new, introduce things that are perhaps outside of your bespoke world. 
Because if you don't find out that stuff, your reality's gonna smash again. My reality. Everybody who's shaken now has an opportunity to see what they've missed, build their reality along more durable lines. Yes, and so and, and along those lines, you talked today, um, she was gracious enough to be on the record at noon today with Bill Radke, and you talked about this idea that in the 24-hour news cycle, there's so much rumor and speculation because they've got so much news to fill. And so then the, the burden falls on the listener, the viewer, the reader to then make sense of that. So this filter that you're talking about, I think is really important, but if it, it doesn't- Just because it's out there doesn't mean you have to consume it. Yes. I mean, I never watch cable news, never. I'm not saying that makes me a good person. It, I'm just, it really just says that I prefer to read science fiction novels than watch the cable news. And in fact, in that little book, there's a mention of Ursula Le Guin and Philip K. Dick and, you know, Gulliver's Travels. That's not science fiction, but kind of. And, uh, and obviously, Brave New World. And, I mean, I find that there's so much more wisdom in metaphor than in the one damn thing after another that constitutes our endless news cycle. And I'm supposed to follow this stuff. Uh, I find it's much easier to go searching for the things that I really care about or that I think the listeners would care about. And I do a series of continuous deep dives every week rather than be in constant monitor mode I think my head would explode. And I don't think you need to know every single thing. I think you need to know some important things. Fewer things, but important ones, fundamental ones. So then how, how is a news consumer to decide? Because I, I hear you saying, um, be, uh, be very careful in what you select, but also, Get out of your bubble, broaden your horizons, look at new information. So where, how as a news consumer can we know, so if we're, we're thinking we're doing our good job, we're listening to KOW, we're listening to NPR, but we, we think we, uh, you know, we need to do something different, we need to break out of our bubble, but then we get into the zone of what you're talking about, which is so much rumor, speculation, unfiltered. How do we go from where we are to not going to InfoWars, somewhere in between. What, what's the, what's yeah. the route? Yeah, you definitely don't want to go to InfoWars because, and, and not just because it's, this is going on the radio ultimately. <laughs> All right. Not just because it's bleep, but, uh, but because it's just going to validate what you already believe. If you go to the most extreme, most outrageous, the most scurrilous and dreadful example of, uh, of what you think the rest of the world is, then you'll be validated never to go there ever again. I mean, that guy's just a scary freak show. Um, you know, but if you go to National Review Online, let's say, assuming that this, this audience is uh, a liberal audience, uh, you know, or commentary, or, you know, red state sometimes, or, you know, just to get a sense of what, how they're seeing things. I mean, it, it, it is true that we live in two different worlds no, now. I think it's almost more important to know how people are living 
than, you know, necessarily what they're saying. I mean, I still think if we didn't see... Look, Trump was elected by Romney Republicans, right? I mean, that was 80% of who voted for him. People who voted for him because they wanted tax cuts. You know, that's the Trump voter. We love to focus on the exotic, on that person out there in the middle of the country somewhere who talks with a funny accent and, you know, doesn't, you know, do, they do jobs that we don't understand or, or, you know, they've never lived anywhere else or, you know, whatever. They aren't uh, an urban elite. And so that's where we focus our time and we think we know them. We think we understand because part of the way we build our world is with stereotypes. And stereotypes, they're shortcuts. Uh, the book that probably most influenced this book, believe it or not, is uh, one that was written in the 1920s by Walter Lippmann called Public Opinion. A brilliant book and unbelievably prescient and readable for free now because the, uh, it's, no, it's now in the public domain, and it's pretty well written, so I'd look it up if you have any further interest in this. But, you know, he, he was the first person to use the word uh, stereotype the way that we use it today. And, uh, you know, we think that we, we know a couple of things about a person, their race or their job or, their, or their, where they live, and, you know, maybe another detail or two, and we think we know them, but we don't. And, uh, you know, I think we might understand more about why we're in this situation if we knew them better, if we knew how they live, what we, if we knew what their hopes were and their disappointments and their fear for the future. We aren't going to agree with them necessarily. If, if you didn't start that way, if you're not afraid of immigrants now, talking to them isn't going to make you afraid of immigrants. I mean, one thing that I say in the book, and it's a very personal book in some ways, you know, I say, I know I'm right. There's only one person that's right, and it's me. I know that I'm right, so I can risk going out there and finding out what other people think, because it isn't going to rock my world, because I know I'm right. I, I just know. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I don't expect anybody to feel any differently, although I am the one who's right. <laughs> and, uh, but it's, you know, but there's so much out there that I didn't really get. But I am a reporter. I have gone to weird places and talked to people very outside of my own world. And it's always been a really thrilling and wonderful and fulfilling experience because it sounds trite and banal, but the fact is, is that people fundamentally do share the same things in common. You know, they, they love their kids, they want peace, they want a, a sense of security, they have a sense of humor, usually. I mean, I, I mean, I haven't... I haven't talked to ISIS, so I don't know, maybe, <laughs> but I mean, but uh, fundamentally, it's not like I think all, it's not like an Anne Frank, I think fundamentally all people are good, but I do think that there's, you can get purchase on them somewhere, there's a place where you can connect, 
And I think it would, it would certainly help us as individuals rebuilding our worlds, and obviously as a nation, which is so riven right now, if there was more of that. It sounds so bland, and yet it's so fundamental. We were chatting earlier today, and you mentioned to me you really dislike the term fake news. Tell yeah. me more about that. I think it's, uh, first of all, it's a cliche, and I really hate cliches. Second of all, it had a meaning once. It meant a content farm, generally offshore, you know, some teenager in Slovenia who decided that they could make some money by making up stuff that got people emotional to retweet it, and then they would get ad revenue from Google or Facebook or wherever, mostly Google. And, uh, and so that's what they did. And they found that uh, both the left and the right you know, extremes really loved retweeting this stuff that was completely untrue, made up in Slovenia, but they made a nice penny on it and they made more from right-wing version of the stuff than left-wing generally, but they made money from both. Then, you know, it was determined that, you know, fake news, things like uh, Donald Trump was endorsed by the Pope and stuff like that, which got retweeted a lot, uh, that was fake news, and the media, the mainstream media, got up in arms about the impact this stuff may have had on the election. I don't think it did, but much was made of it. And then the term was picked up by the president to mean anything that he didn't agree with. And now everybody uses the term to mean whatever it is that they don't agree with, when there are much more precise terms that don't glorify what is a lie or propaganda, or deception, or any number of things with the word news. It's just a term that no longer means anything, and yet by wielding it, you're denigrating the idea that news is something that is intended to be true, generally. If it isn't news, then it's propaganda then it's a lie, then it's a deception, or a conspiracy, or whatever you like. But if you call it fake news, you're, it's, it's like saying little Mario or, or crooked Hillary. You're associating the word news, which means something, with fakeness. And I just think that's falling into the trap. And I, my colleagues use it sometimes, and I, it just really bothers me. Clearly. <laughs> Don't use it. So, so speaking, of that, that's, that's a good segue to the, just the idea of the words that we're using, the words we use in media, the words we use just amongst our friends and conversation. And you talk about the importance, specifically with the media, of the precision of language and the power that that holds. And so you t just you know, reference this idea. Um, the New York Times took a stance and started calling out the president's you know, certain things that he was saying as lies. Other people wouldn't take that stance. So, so when you get into thinking about the precision of language, what, what is the media's responsibility and how far should they take that? Yeah, I think the media have always had a responsibility to be as accurate and as fair, but as accurate as they can. And uh, 
but you know, it's been at least since the Nixon administration, this idea that the liberal media are biased and therefore they'll bend over backwards with something that I, I call uh, in, in the comic book, fairness bias. You know, giving 50-50 time to entirely unequal arguments in order to protect themselves from the charge of bias, but they aren't serving their audience because those two arguments don't deserve equal time. I mean, global warming is the classic example. You have the, uh, you know, the one outlier scientist paid for by, frequently it's the tobacco industry, not even the oil industry, but they're all part of this, uh, you know, junk news, junk science. That's the, the scientific equivalent of fake news, you know. Anyway, so, uh, they, uh, you know, they, for a long time they would have one scientist, the outlier, have as much space as the entire scientific consensus. And, you know, look, fair and balanced. But is that serving the reader? No, it simply isn't. And I think that all of these attacks, the fact that I think many in the media understand that Trump will just use them and abuse them as he sees fit and there's nothing to be gained and you don't have to make the usual trades, the deals you make to get anonymous quotes that were never any good anyway to finish your story because the place leaks like a lobster pot. And then, uh, and so all you really need to do is uh, tell the truth the best you can. Uh, I think it's been quite liberating. I do think, however, there still isn't enough triage being done on the, on the president's uh, ejaculations. And I use that term as, as you'll find that meaning in the dictionary. <laughs> but I mean, you know, that's what they are. There are these sort of little, little you know, more every morning explosions. That sounds dirtier, right? We were all thinking something else. So, so, moving away from that. Um, so, speaking of so bias, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Both mostly in the media, but sort of segueing into what you talk a lot of in this book, which is about our own personal bias. But what I'm most interested in, in learning from you is so the personal bias we all carry as journalists, right? We all have it. Everyone, we, I just read a, a really fascinating article about so much of what the media does is try and hide that anybody has an opinion about anything, right? Yeah, maybe uh, you don't mean bias, though. Maybe you mean just coming to conclusions. I mean, it was outrageous to me when I found out that, you know, a former editor of the Washington Post and, uh, and Jim Lear, uh, you know, of the news hour, they, they didn't vote. They didn't exercise their franchise because it would be like putting a stake in the sand. Well, we have computers who can be that now. I mean, what you, what you want is someone who has experience and judgment and background information and still to present the news in a fair and accurate way. But do you deny your experience? Were we ever really this band of passionless priests 
that had no stake in the outcome of anything. Some of the best journalism that was ever done in this country was done by activists, you know? We called them muckrakers, Ida Tarbell, and, uh, and you know, the people at the McClure's and, and the new masses, for that matter. These were deep investigative reports. So uh, we've spent so much time trying to deny or suppress a lot of the hard-earned experience that we've amassed over the years. Uh, but what, so what, let's take that further to the other end. So the people that really, this is something that we've talked quite a bit about in the KOW newsroom, they would love us to, um, to exercise some of that bias, right? And so we talk about the mm. idea, they would like for us to draw a line at some point and say that's, that's too far. We, we don't want to necessarily have you report on that or talk about that. And, and one of the phrases we use, which is from NPR, is we feel our job is to reflect the world as it is, not as we wish it were. Can you give me an example of, uh, of the, like the kind of thing you'd have a yeah. debate on there? Right, so, so most recently you may have heard some of the controversy. We had a Nazi on our air at KOW. Now there are the whole host of reasons why we would love a redo on that. Um, we didn't execute it very well. Um, and we learned a lot from that process. But what the outcry was from our audience and actually internal um, inside the station was that we talked to him at all. It was very, very clear that people were angry at us. Um, why would you talk to uh, a white supremacist, a neo-Nazi? This is, there's gotta be a line that you will draw. And that was what we, we had really deep conversations with at the station, which is if you draw the line there, where does it stop? And as journalists, we, we think our job is to reflect the world to the community that we serve and let them make those decisions. How do you fall on that? Well, we had our Nazi on. Uh, uh, but uh, it was executed pretty well, I'd say, by Bob, because in the end, the Nazi said, I really feel sorry for you, Bob. You sound so angry. <laughs> uh, we have people on who are, uh, with whom we disagree profoundly. We don't give them regular space on the air, but I think that if they were going to have an impact, and at this point in the in the discussion, there was a much said about the impact of the alt-right on the president's agenda. It turned out most of them got punted, but maybe they didn't need to be there because the president's still saying the same stuff. So the question is, you know, if the alt-right is there, who are these people? You know, where is the power base? What do they think? What do they want? And you know, Bob didn't give the guy a pass in the slightest. Uh, he wasn't there to necessarily to scream him down either. I mean, we had him on so we could figure out who these people are. What do they think? I think you make your decision on what you think is gonna be useful to your audience to better understand what's going on in the world. I'm not worried about slippery slope arguments very much, the where do you draw the line argument. I think that, you know, when they are applied in politics, it's always absurd. Oh, you're having gay marriage, now you're, you're gonna legalize sex with turtles or, you know, whatever it is. And it, it's, I, I think that it's all part of the case-by-case -case judgments that, uh, you know, we have to do as journalists. Right, well, I mean, it, what's interesting is, um, 
as we move into these uncharted waters, I think you know our audience. They're they're with us in this in this way that they they want they want to see the world as as we would show it to them, and they trust us. Um, and so, as as broadcasters, as journalists, we we're 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 mindful of that. We want to serve our audience, and so so that balance between pushing people out of their comfort zones and yet wanting to keep our people close. Right. I think that you can still keep them close. You can still represent your listeners and still have those people on. Because, you know, I think that as an interviewer, you function as a listener's surrogate. You ask the question. You make the argument that you think your listener would if they could. Um, Or the ideal listener. Not every listener, clearly. Because some of you are just nuts. But... uh, (laughs) But, um, you know, but the ideal listener, you want to do well by that person, that thoughtful person that you know is listening on the other side. So you're bringing that person on for them, not to alienate them. You are rep, but because, you know, these people are no longer uh, lurking in the shadows, the the white supremacists and so on, because they are having a, a much bigger say in the conversation and causing chaos in the streets. You can't pretend that they're not there. You're not serving your audience by doing that. Well, good. I'm glad you. <laughs> that's where that's where we landed, and it's it's an uncomfortable space. And I think that's the part of they're hard interviews to do. Yeah, no question. We talk about getting getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, and uh, I feel like not only as as uh, journalists but as news consumers, there's it feels like that's the space we're in. Um, and it gets exhausting. I mean, do you yeah. hear a lot about the fatigue as you're going through and you're talking to journalists? And, and, and how, do you, how do you get past the idea that it, it just, it all seems like too much? I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, uh, this was the year that I was going to take off and write a book about Neanderthals. <laughs> But we have a really young staff, and also a friend of our, uh, my husband is a journalist too, and uh, a friend of ours emailed him and said, do you feel like you've been practicing for like 25 years just for this moment? I mean, if if you're not going to do your best work now, when are you? So, I'm still there. Still thinking about it. But, you know, it's, it is exhausting. It's exhausting and distressing, and the volume of science fiction novels I have bought has skyrocketed over them. Um, I just, uh, you know, people will say, well, what kind of media outlets should I be consuming? And I just want to say, can I tell you what the great science fiction writers are doing right now? Um, But it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, The biggest fear for me is that the nation as a whole will become less engaged. you know, at least we're paid to pay attention. Um, You know, you have to, it's a rare person who can devote themselves to the cause of whatever it might be, anything. The state of our democracy, protecting voting rights, protecting health insurance, making sure that the poor have a place to live, any number of things that could take all your time. And maybe it makes sense to do the kind of triage that I talked about for the media. Find the one or two issues and do 
something about it every day. You know, write your congressperson or make a phone call or, you know, volunteer. I mean, try and channel and, and use that energy to, to live in the world because, you know, being complacent isn't going to move us away from the generalized feeling of kind of sodden, exhausted sadness that so many people feel right now. So turning uh, a little bit of your, your lens on, on it, public radio is you, but I'm really more interested in, you said something today that I thought was interesting. You said you thought public radio plays it a little safe. Um, I don't know if you include yourself in that or if you're talking about local stations like KOW or I was, NPR. I was talking about NPR mostly. You know, they, they are, look, I've worked at NPR for many years. Uh, as Scott Simon's editor, then the editor of All Things Considered, then as a Moscow correspondent for three years and six years as their media correspondent. I mean, a long time. And uh, there isn't a place that feels more the pressure of being unbiased than public radio. So, you know, they've made a decision. They won't use the word lie. They won't use the word lie because they don't know for sure whether or not Trump just doesn't know anything. <laughs> you can't lie unless you understand that it is a lie. He doesn't seem to care. I have to say that, uh, do you remember this book that was written a few years back uh, by a philosophy teacher, an Ivy League philosophy teacher named Harry Frankfurt? And it was called, and you'll just have to bleep this because it's, you know, it was called On Bullshit. And I think maybe you can say bullshit, actually. I think we can. And uh, he... Uh, <laughs> And what he did is he distinguished between just lying or horse bleep and bullshit. And, and what he said was that the person who lies is trying to create, is trying to persuade you of something, really. Uh, one could say one who would track the lies of the Bush administration in the run-up to the uh, invasion of Iraq counted... I think one organization counted 92 lies, intentional falsehoods, in order to create the argument for going to war in Iraq. Uh, now, one could argue that they honestly believed there were weapons of destruction there, but they didn't have the evidence, so they cooked it. But they thought it was there. I would, I, I'm willing to give them that. And, uh, but that's not Trump's issue. I don't think Trump... Trump has created a kind of alternate, a um, smoking hellscape of America for, uh, for, the, for a certain part of the population. But uh, fundamentally, he doesn't care whether or not what he's saying is true. Uh, he wants to cast doubt on the very idea that truth can be known or that it even exists. And... Uh, and He's using statements randomly said, true or otherwise, for a momentary blip of attention or gain or to 
relieve himself of responsibility or to cast blame on someone else or to uh, distract. That is just classic bullshit. And, and you know, if we were going to be truly accurate in, in the Harry Frankfurt book, that would, that would be the word we would apply to him. We can't really do that. But um, we are, NPR plays it safe, won't use that word, uh, is careful to make sure all sides are reflected. And I think NPR's biggest problem is that it doesn't ask follow-ups a lot of times when, when they should. I mean, the, they get good interviews sometimes, but, you know, I have a weekly show, so we can spend an hour on an interview, and I can ask a question, the same question, 15 times in a row. You won't hear that, but then I will edit together the complete answer, and the interviewee never has complained all these years because I don't edit to win the argument just to get the most concise and cogent response that I can, whether or not I'm in, in agreement with the person I'm interviewing or utterly not. But I can keep asking and sometimes I'll leave in the, the you know, the follow-up, follow-up, follow-up. I have a chance. I think that part of it is just a function of NPR that they don't have the time to spend with each person they're interviewing. But I think as a result, those interviews are just less enlightening and less valuable. And I think that's, that's a shame, you know? It would be better just to do longer, deeper interviews because they're, they're very skilled journalists at National Public Radio. I think it's the process which I've participated in. It's just too rushed. But does it, so does it feel like to you that we can, we can change this conversation because I, I don't know if you saw this most recent poll about the, the level of trust in media. It's, it's at an all-time low. And it's, we, we think it's conservatives versus liberals, but it's, it's across the board. Um, and so, you know, sometimes I wonder, is, is there anything we can actually do about that given the landscape? Or we do, do we have to wait it out? And at some point, it's just going to get better. As a media organization, we, we don't know quite how to think about that. Yeah. And I think part of the problem is the terms, because the media is not a unitary institution. You know, we are the media. The media are us. The media are cable news and blogs and Twitter and Facebook and Infowars and the New York Times and KUOW and, and uh, you know, they're all those things. And so who is it that people don't have faith in? Are they asked about the media in general? Some studies do, some polls, some break it down. How do you feel about your newspaper, your local TV, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you get various degrees of trust when you, when you break it down that way. But I think what people are reacting to, first of all, is the crooked Hillary uh, conjunction of the attacks on the press that even if you don't agree with them, they just, they start building, you know, kind of associative pathways. So, you know, the pre lying press, lying media, blah, blah, blah. Failing New York Times. New York Times hasn't been doing so well in years because now supporting quality journalism has become an act of engagement, which is great. <laughs> but, uh, but fundamentally, I'll, I'll just say that uh, what we have to do is 
better than we ever have. And, uh, and that's all we can do, is better than we ever have. I think we could make better decisions. I think people are responding to the noise, the blather, the emptiness of so much is out there. I, and people feel a responsibility or a, a compulsion to consume it. You know, ultimately, it is up to the news consumer. This is a business. They serve up what gets viewers and clicks. So sometimes I think people, you know, one part of the country is complaining about the other part of the country, but they still switch on, you know, their cable news thing, and then they hear this stuff and it's annoying, but they can't turn it off, and it's the electronic fireplace or something. You know, we are all culpable, and we are all punished thereby. So as we wrap up our part of it, and if you have questions, if you want to start to come to the mic and, and um, line up, we'll, we'll take those in a minute. But we always, we feel like we, we always do want something to leave with that we feel like we can do. Um, and you, you kind of frame it as um, a couple of things, that there are, there are some things within our control, and mostly it's ourselves. And you talk about the idea that um, our reality just needs some tweaking, first of all. So what, what, what can we do as we, as we leave here and we're thinking about all these things? You mentioned some very specific examples of ways you can get involved and engaged, but just in how we think about it, is there, is there kind of a takeaway that you would give people of how to get through it, how to not go insane, how to, how to maintain and, and be active? You know, it's, you're not wrong, but you're not entirely right. None of us is. Um, I think that, I think we just have to stop being so tribal. There's so little tolerance now. This is an era of such orthodoxy on all sides. And, uh, you know, and then there's, we derive a feeling of purity from it. Uh, and it's maybe a temporary comfort, but it's kind of like, you know, the comfort of the bottle. You know, you can drink it down and it's an excuse f for not thinking about things anymore. But n you can never be through thinking about things. I just wish that people wouldn't be afraid to wander from their orthodoxy and from their tribe. Just take a little walk away. There's any number of ways to do that. You know, just by reading in a, uh, an, un, uh, an unsanctified writer on a subject, you know, by following up, you know, certain facts that you think must be wrong, but they're cited by a responsible organization, and maybe they're not, you know. Just question things a little bit more, um, rather than to harden your sense of certainty uh, because there's, uh, because it's so confusing out there and that's what we want to do. But the world that seemed to work, the world that said democracy works, the world that said that facts will win an argument, the world that said we, uh, you know, we learn from our mistakes. You know, uh, these fundamental principles 
they're just not true. We're just, uh, you know, we are profoundly flawed as a species and, uh, and all like us, all we can do is our best work and the same goes for every single person in this room and it's an endless struggle and it, you know, that's not a comforting thing to walk out with so I'm sorry about that. And don't get your news from Facebook. I think that was <laughs> a takeaway. Don't get your news from Facebook. Yes. Yeah, don't get your news from Facebook. Don't let your friends in an algorithm decide what you should see. Hello. Um, so I know you mentioned things about embracing bias or striving for objectivity, um, you know, how to function in an environment of fake news and this war with Trump and the media. How do you think personally the media should address, you know, Trump, his tweets, um, alternative facts? Narrow question there. Uh, no, I would say that, you know, we have on our, on our Twitter feed and on our website a whole, uh, a whole list of the different kinds of Trump tweets they are, how they're intended, what they're supposed to do, and basically it's a breakdown and an analysis of Trump tweets, it's quite useful. I think that, uh, you know, I think that you're asking what the news consumer should do, right? Or how, I'm how, not quite sure what you're asking. I was asking how do you think the media should address Trump Oh, how should the tweets? media address like, it? Well, you know, I, like I said, I think the media need to decide which tweets are worth digging into and which are worth merely noting, you know, in tweet watch or something. There's been a big debate over whether or not the tweets should be regarded as official statements from the White House. Or do we just give this guy a pass and just assume it's a kind of verbal diarrhea? I don't think that he should be let off the hook that way. So, but on the other hand, if you pay attention to tweets, people will say those are just so many shiny objects. So there, there needs to be more reporting on everything, and I think that uh, the reporting needs to go deep. In terms of the constant disparagement of the news media, um, I think that, you know, there are plenty of periods in history where everybody hates the media. They hated the media in the run of, in, during Watergate. They hated the media um, in the run-up to the war in Iraq. You know, uh, you know, they loved the media when, uh, during the coverage of Katrina, although some of that coverage was terrible. Because what people really want from the media are, is validation of their own views and a voice to give expression to how they feel and the expressions of shame and rage that people felt watching the debacle, the tragedy of Katrina was expressed by those cable news hosts. And even though a lot of what they said was just plain wrong, uh, they said it, they expressed their feelings. So the, the polls went way up. Uh, so, you know, I think that the media needs to stick to its fundamental mission because you, sometimes the public will hate you for it and then they'll love you for it later. In fact, that happens a lot. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Hi, yeah. Um, I had a question about, um, you were talking about bringing Nazis onto the air. And it, there seems to be like there's like a crop of people coming up, like deplorable kind of people that get attention from going on the media and um, 
sort of saying these really extreme views and then getting a lot of blowback and a lot of um, sort of protests against them. I'm wondering like how like kind of media and all the consumers can kind of repudiate the values that these people have while without sort of giving them the, the fuel of like victimhood. Yeah, I mean, I think that they can. I think by interrogating them really strenuously and by having somebody on for a reason, not just because they're, uh, you know, they're a great car wreck and very entertaining. I think that, you know, your intention and your execution have to be clear and have to, has to be really effective. I think that a byproduct of interrogating or exposing an issue is that you're exposing it. I mean, you can't have it both ways. You have to make a choice. In, you know, as reporters, I always think more speech is better than less. That doesn't mean I'm gonna have somebody on to bloviate offensively for no reason. So, you know, we had a reason. We had a set of questions and we applied uh, a very, you know, we, were, we interrogated ourselves before actually going ahead with it. And uh, I think that there isn't any way around it. There's no way out of the, you can't expose someone and not give them airtime. That's just kind of against physics. So you, you know, you just have to do it right and you have to do it sparingly. But you don't just, uh, you know, draw a shade over something that's happening in the country and pretend it's not there. You could have answered that too. Good evening. Good evening. Your prescription, as I've heard it, is primarily an individual exercise in cultivating discretion and humility and openness. Um, and I am questioning how that's going to accomplish a much more broad-based uh, cultural change in how we think. And I've just been reading the book, J Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, documenting a 40-year... That's what I was referring to, starting with the Nixon administration. Yeah. Of, of, of think you know, tanks that have, were designed to seed the culture manipulate with... Manipulate the public discourse in a very Machiavellian and systematic way, propagand using all the most sophisticated mm -hmm. propaganda techniques based in marketing and um, cognitive science. Um, how do you want to respond to the challenge of the more institutionalized problems in our uh, information culture? That wasn't the intention in that little book. I mean, you know, that is a different book and a much larger one. This one was simply an exploration of what was the nature of this distress. Now, basically, the book is divided into three parts, how we're wired to shrink the world, how the confluence of human nature and technology gave this moment to Trump, and uh, what can one do to sort of pace their world back together. It did not attempt to offer a prescription to the broader problems. We do talk about that a lot on the show. Uh, when I was approached to write this, to write something, anything, uh, 
you know, I said, the, the world was changing too fast. I didn't have time to take off from the program to do the kind of book that you describe. I think there are some wonderful books out there by people who are far more qualified than I am to talk about that. Rebecca Solnit, you know, is wonderful. And, uh, and Jane Mayer's description of dark money really is harrowing. There's no question about it. This is, uh, uh, is basically an essay. It's, it's a, it is, that's why I just called it a rumination. It's not a cure, it's not a prescription. It, is, it, it doesn't, uh, it addresses the institutional problems as a function of human nature, but it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't provide a recipe for action. I have a question about science fiction. Mm. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, I appreciate the excerpt from your book about uh, Huxley and Orwell, and I'm wondering if you're reading anything now or in the past few years that has felt similarly prescient for the moment that we're in, where not only is media pervasive, mm. but we are also, not only are we all consumers of media, but we are producers and distributors of it as well. Or just something really good and escapist, because I'm pretty tired these days. Well, yeah. <laughs> There, you know, we did a show recently on, apocalyp on uh, apocalyptic science fiction and also science fiction uh, that imagines the environment, you know, 100 or 150 years from now. Kim Stanley Robinson keeps doing that. Uh, Jeff Vandermeer did a trilogy that was wonderful. He has a new book out called Born, which has to do, uh, which has as its sort of, you know, fundamental idea, the germ of today, has to do with bioengineering. And uh, I thought it was fascinating. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I've also been doing pure escapism, too. You know, N.K. Jemison. There's a whole crop of uh, young, black, female science fiction writers. It's like, you know, it's when did Octavia Butler die? I mean, so long ago, but I mean, there seems to be this crop of people who are, who are creating these incredibly detailed worlds that are that's much fun to inhabit. Um, yeah, there's a, and I just bought the new Pullman book, so uh, I'll let you know what I think. No, you didn't like it? What? I thought I was looking for your... Uh, oh, oh no, I wish I'd read it. I just have it at home, but I don't, I don't have it with me. Thank but uh, yeah, I'd go with Bourne. Bourne is really fun. That's uh, Vandermeer's. Um, so I actually want to dive in with a curator's prerogative last question since we have you on stage. One of my favorite things that On The Media covers is the business of the media industry. I remember... A few, a while ago now you had a jingle about the present and future business models to monetize the newspaper industry. And um, this is maybe a, also a recommendation question, but right after Trump was elected, it seemed like there was this kind of resistance move to subscribe to the Washington Post, subscribe to your local newspaper, subscribe to magazines. Is that a real positive trend that you think will have real continuation in the business? And what are some subscriptions that everyone in the room should have I, uh, right now in this era? I think, I, I love this question for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of which is because somebody who really complained about the fact that uh, quality information wasn't being supported and that it was really entertainment that kept the presses running, and that's why the news is so bad, 
was Walter Lippmann in the 1920s. But um, interestingly, this, this may be finally, maybe, the kind of change from what people in the newspaper business call the original sin, which is when they started putting their stuff online for free, right at the beginning. And so people got used to it being free, and something that Lippmann said is that people always assume they have a right to the information. It's the entertainment and the, and the you know, everything that is enjoyable, you know, that isn't broccoli, you know, they're, you know, enter, you know, like hobby stuff, you know, or, or porn, or though the, that has really taken a hit in the internet age as well. And, uh, but people will buy HBO, right? And so, when I was a kid, you never paid for television. You had your three channels and your two other channels. And then, uh, and then the, the little syndicated ones, five channels on your TV. And uh, you didn't pay for water. I mean, there were so many things you didn't pay for. Now, we got used to paying for that, but we still, in, in the entire history, do just not used to paying for quality information never have. And so it's, uh, this may be a moment when the broken business models that we've talked about for certain publications. I do think that the Washington Post, the New York Times, and public radio have benefited. I, I know WNYC has. I hope that KUOW has because the thing that's taken the worst hit is local news. And that's where the most important stuff really happens, is in local communities. Some places, vast places, there are a vast number of places where no experienced reporters covering the state house. There are lots of states where they're just using journalism students for that, and they don't have the, the institutional history to, to be able to do it well, however talented they may be. And this, you know, there's corruption happening in plain sight. We did a show a couple of years ago called Dead Beats, where we talked about beats that have gone dead. You know, the labor beat, the environment beat has gone dead. These, the, there are no longer people covering this stuff. And, uh, you know, it is on the local level where citizens need to put their money. Anybody in this room who complains about the media and doesn't pay for the stuff that they consume, that they rely on, should just shut up. Hey, hey. <laughs> now, there's, a, there's something you can take There's home. something you can use. <laughs> Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Brooke Gladstone spoke with KUOW's Chief Content Officer Jennifer Strachan at Seattle's University Lutheran Church on November 1st. Town Hall Seattle presented the event as part of their Civic Series. Thanks to Sonia Harris for our recording. You can hear the full event on our website, kuow.org slash speakersforum. Tune in again soon.